Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is supported this week by Pestex Pest Control. Ben with Pestex sprayed my house just last month and a lot of folks probably think you don't have to spray for bugs in the winter because it's too cold for them, but here's what happens. Sometimes they just go dormant in cold weather and they lay low and they wait for a nice warm spring day to come out and then they come out. Anyway, spiders can be a problem inside your house during colder months because they're looking for warmth too. And that's all my family needs to hear. So we call Ben. Uh, Pestex is locally owned. It uses pet-friendly products and doesn't have a one-size-fits-all approach. They'll evaluate your pest problem and figure out how to solve it. To get in touch, call or text 806-433-8841 or follow Pestex on Facebook or Instagram. Today's guest is Jim Whitten who is retired, but still the very definition of an interesting person. Uh, And that's who I like to interview. Because, man, what a career this guy has had. He owned a talent agency in New York City in the late 80s. And, well, just wait until you hear who his clients were. He came to Amarillo to lead advertising and marketing efforts at Hastings Entertainment in the 1990s. And then he spent 15 years working with The Hunger Project, an international organization with the goal of ending world hunger. In recent years, Jim has been instrumental in getting the funding for StoryBridge to become a partner with the Dolly Parton Imagination Library. So, yeah, there's a lot in this episode. Here's Jim Whitten. Jim Whitten, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I've been wanting to have you as a guest for a while. I, I know that we've spoken before. Um, I know a little bit about your story, but I'm going to ask you the, the same question I ask all of my guests uh, to start the show, and that's, why are you here? What, what brought you to Amarillo in the first place? And I know for you, it's kind of a lifelong sort of story. Well, specifically what brought me to Amarillo, I would have to trace to a, a, a night where I asked a cute blonde uh, for some money for a nonprofit I was volunteering for. Okay. And um, walked away with her phone number. And grappled with this dilemma as to whether I could use it for personal gain. Uh, resolved in favor of doing so. We went out two nights later and got married a year later. That's my wife, Barbara, of 36 years, mm-hmm. who hails from Lubbock. Okay. This all, what I just described, happened in New York City. But as the years went on in New York, uh, actually, I, before Barbara, sort of, um, the way I describe it is that sort of like the Thanksgiving turkey um, there's a button that pops out when yeah. it's done. Yeah. So I woke up one morning in New York after living there for 10, 11 years and just realized I'm done with New York City. Yeah. And I needed to find out, find another place to be. And uh, my roots are North Carolina. We talked about friends and family down there to go do stuff with. Uh, Barbara's roots, she had two siblings here uh, in Amarillo. And one of them was married to John Marmaduke, who okay. is the head of the family. Well, at that time, was a family business, uh, right. Hastings Entertainment. And his business was going through a big change, and he had an opening. And so the decision was made in 1992 for me to come out and uh, learn the retail trade from the ground up because I had no experience in it before that. And uh, uh, that's really how we got here. Before we get to your your journey to Amarillo from New York City. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about the work that you were doing in New York City. Well, I started out as an international banker. I had uh, gone to 
college and learned to speak Chinese and lived in Taiwan for a year before I came back to the States and uh, moved to New York and got a job with Chase Manhattan Bank and was working on the international desk. And it was not long into that uh, period of that, that I realized that banking was not going to be uh, my favorite sport and, and I was not going to be a high draft pick either. So uh, uh, it was also during that time that I got exposed to this, this, this group that I asked my wife to give money to that called the hunger project. Okay. And the, the hunger project really was, it, when I think about career, it was the biggest part of my career. Uh, eventually uh, in New York, it was on a volunteer basis. Uh, I went to a volunteer-led four-hour presentation called The Ending Hunger Briefing one Saturday in 1982 and swallowed the Kool-Aid. They, yep. made, they basically made the case that we were living at a time when the worst aspects of chronic persistent hunger all around the world could, in fact, be ended, not, not just helped out with, not just sort of working around the edges, but really if we got after it uh, mm -hmm. as a problem to be solved, we could do it. And I said, and it captured my heart, my imagination. Uh, I was really impressed with the people. Um, and I actually went into an apprenticeship as a, a volunteer to learn how to uh, lead that briefing. Uh, had a ball doing that uh, in schools and in businesses and for the public, you name it. And then uh, when I, I, during that time, Shortly after I had uh, met my wife, or future wife at that time, uh, the Hunger Project had been based in San Francisco and was about to open an office in New York. So I left the bank and helped them open their office in New York and spent one full year, first my first, what ended up being my first year of marriage, getting them squared away and sort of set up and going. Still as a volunteer, uh, though? No, was no it, I, I, I joined their staff okay. that year. That's when I joined their staff. Um, but it was... Um, it was one of those things where um, in my first year of marriage, my wife never saw me. It was like I was the cause. Uh, we, you know, it was, I would, I would leave at 10 o'clock at night to go home and I'd feel like a, I'd worked a half day compared to my you know, peers who were still there. Um, the, um, and my wife had this unique opportunity. Uh, her background was television. And she had been a, a casting director on the soap opera Guiding Light. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, you know, I do remember that because that was my mom's soap opera. Okay. And so when I was supposed to be taking a nap as a child, it was usually playing in the living right. room. And I I can still see the, the, the title of it because I was trying not to go sure. to sleep, you right. know, even even in the 70s when I was a kid. So. Right, right. Well, anyway, so, that, so, yeah. so Barbara, Barbara was a, uh, she had done television in Lubbock for the local CBS affiliate uh, with a camera on her shoulder going to football games mm -hmm. and other sort of news things. And um, when she got to New York, she got to work for Guiding Light and then eventually became a cast, an independent casting director, casting films other TV shows and stage theater um, on Broadway. And, uh, and then she got hired by the other side of the coin. Casting directors are always looking for talent. The other side of the coin are talent agents who are trying to sell talent. Right. So she ended up being hired away by a large talent agency. And as it happened, she got uh, her clientele were some of the most beautiful women in the world um, at Elite Model Management, one of the top two modeling agencies in the world. And her office was inside their premises. And uh, when I met her, that's what she was doing. Hmm. So uh, with, within that first year, though, the, the owner of Elite Model Management and the owner of the talent agency that she was working for had a falling out. And Barbara negotiated to stay on, keep the same clientele, 
and just have it be her own business. And that's when I left the Hunger Project and said, well, I'll, I'll try and remember what I learned at banking if I right, learned any, right. anything and um, get you up and running. And it turned out we worked really well together. She was sort of the head salesperson, head, head uh, agent, and I sort of ran the business part of it. Okay. So, uh, How long did, did the two of you do that? We did that uh, from 86 to 92 okay. uh, in the same office, and we kept the business. When I came, I actually came out here ahead of her. We didn't move out together. We commuted for about four years. Um, so we didn't sell that business until 1996. And I realize that's you know fairly long ago, but were any of the models you represented people that, that we might know or names we might recognize? May, oh, maybe. Um, Cindy Crawford. I have, um, I have heard of her. Uh, Kathy Ireland, uh, Naomi Campbell. So uh, the, the entire crew of Sports Illustrated. This, this, this is just, models, just, but... about, just about. Stephanie Seymour. Um, so these were... These were as um, um, these were the top models. There was one. The other competitor of ours was called Ford, um, right. Eileen Ford's agency, and uh, uh, she had the Christy Brinkleys and a few other. They were mostly blondes. We had we had the more European exotic okay. looking uh, uh, gals. Tell me, just because that's such a foreign business to me, and, and probably to most listeners in Amarillo, that's sure. not our world. Tell me what. Um, was interesting to you about it was was enjoyable about it i mean obviously you're spending time with beautiful women and a lot of people can assume well that that seems fun uh, but maybe what about that business was was well, you, good for you you're not we, we started out uh, where um what gave birth to the uh, business itself was that relationship with elite model management mm-hmm. but we expanded that business over the next six years where we took on the sort of where's the beef ladies, the, okay. what are called yeah. character actors. Sure. And then we, we also merged with another agency that had film actors. So uh, um, with with regard to the beautiful women, it's it's all sort of the same. People, they're, they're, they're casting directors who are looking to fill slots in commercials for shampoo, for cosmetics, yeah. you know, or, or maybe even a major cosmetic contract. We did one. Uh, for Revlon, for with Cindy Crawford, we did we did another one for Estee Lauder with a woman named Paulina Porskova. Oftentimes, you're just on the, you're on the receiving end of people looking to hire these models, and you then being you're in touch with the models to say, okay, you're, you need to be here at this point. And, right. and when they decide on which model they're going to go with for a particular job, you negotiate their rate and uh, take ten percent of commission. That's how you do. That's how it works. And then the transition from doing that work. To you know, coming to Amarillo and working for Hastings, obviously those are very different worlds. Yes. New York City, the world of model, to Amarillo, Texas, and retail world, that's very different. I mean, tell me a little bit about that transition and some of the things that uh, that kind of stick out about Well, I that. think the transition was made a little bit easier because it wasn't directly to Amarillo. Okay. Um, I, my first year was spent in Albuquerque because Hastings had five of their biggest stores in Albuquerque, and that's where I, I worked actually in the stores shelving you know videotapes and and uh putting in uh, cds and 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 books and whatnot just just to learn it from the ground up um i then went over and managed a large store in flagstaff so my yeah. my intro to the southwest was really a year in albuquerque which is a much easier adjustment uh much much bigger city bigger city yeah and and offered uh, a lot that i uh, uh it's where i first took up mountain biking it was okay. uh, it yeah. was great great fun um, and then similar Flagstaff had this gorgeous, uh, you know, natural beauty and, mm-hmm. uh, 
and a college town with great restaurants and, and so on and so forth. But uh, so it was then after a couple of years of that that I then moved to Amarillo in 94 and um, became the director of advertising for when, when the Hastings was breaking off from the wholesale operation that it had sold right. first to Walmart and then to a group called Anderson, Anderson Mer- yeah. Merchandisers. Uh, and occupying, having a, uh, a store support center in the old Sunset Center facility. So we were we sort of moved in there all at once, and and we're now we had these 150 stores all around the country, and then you know needed needed to provide the the support and distribution and advertising and communications and marketing and you, you name it. And that that role, you know, in advertising and and marketing for Hastings was it was kind of during a transitional time for the company because it was getting to the stage where. People were buying fewer, well, at least setting up to the stage where people started to think less about, you know, buying a physical CD and, you know, things were moving to digital towards before, the end of that. It was a little bit but, before that. This was 94 and I did it for the next three years. Okay. So, um, so 94 so to 97. So was it pretty so, standard then, record store, retail, books? Yeah. Not much of the, the writing on the wall that the, the industry's changing. No, it was, but it was, it made the, the. The early indications were were there, but uh, it, but Amazon hadn't really. I think they, was it ninety five that so they the started? late nineties. I feel like yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if people yeah. really took it seriously yeah. at that point, and it was just books, you know, right. before it was that's everything right. else. That's right. So, what did you enjoy about the work here in Amarillo? I mean, um, I'm still trying to picture you having gone from hanging out with Cindy Crawford to like stalking videotapes at a Hastings. <laughs> right, <laughs> that that right. seems like a very abrupt uh, career path. The, um, you know, it, it, it was, um, I think I really liked the people um, mm-hmm. and what I was learning. It was a whole new, new field to learn. And uh, um, when, when we moved into Amarillo and I was working in the head office, uh, Hastings just had an executive team that was, second to none, and just was great to work with. And whether it was the buyers for the books, music and video, whether it was the just the executives in the in the uh, various departments. And those are fun products. Those are, yeah. I mean, it's sort of, sort of a little bit like, I mean, we would have, we had Garth Brooks come by and, you know, dedicate the, uh, the, the warehouse to John's father and, uh, and do a little, little play a couple of songs for us. And you know, we had, uh, uh, a number of artists who come through and, and play. It was sort of like what one of the things we loved when we expanded the talent agency was going to openings on Broadway. When okay. we, you have a client who is, you know, a, a young somebody, typically because we were small, um, the client, kind of clients we would have for theater would we'd be just a year out of graduate school. Okay. Maybe it's maybe one of the good ones, like Carnegie Mellon or SMU or, you know, you name it. And uh, and and the thrill of seeing them get their first you know exposure to you know something like Broadway uh, uh, was a and and this, this this had that sort of thrill. New books, new all new new videos, new new uh, music um, had sort of that same kind of kind of thrill. And uh, when I left uh, before we sold the business, we were about a, a ten or twelve person operation. So being part of a four hundred person company. Um, it's, uh, I just appreciated sort of a lot that went with that. How long did that last at Hastings? Uh, a total of five years. Okay. A total of five years. And, and then uh, I, I understand that after your time at Hastings was over, you moved back into 
the nonprofit world. That's right. That's right. So I actually had my hand at, at a couple, three different entrepreneurial ventures that went nowhere. <laughs> okay. uh, we won't go into those. Um, but in 2002, uh, I got a call from one of my old colleagues at the Hunger Project, and they were right. looking for somebody to work full time uh, to do fundraising in the center, central part of the country, as well as the Southwest. And uh, uh, would I be willing to work from home and, you know, uh, with this cell phone and laptop, uh, cover that territory? And uh, and I was I was ready. Hmm. And, and it was uh, it was a great, great move. And spent my next 15 years there. So And uh, doing remote work before before it was cool. That's right. Well, it was, it was about, it was, yeah, this was 2002. Um, there was more and more of that uh, happening. But yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't COVID remote work, that's for sure. And you did that for, for how many years? 15 years. 15 years? Yeah. Um, and was that like, like going back to this organization that, yes. uh, you know, that you had kind of found your way into so early? Um Again, very different from the work that you were doing at Hastings. But did you feel like, okay, this is this is where all my tools, all my skills, kind of come and and find their fulfillment? I did, and and uh, the organization itself had changed dramatically. Uh, when it started out, it was working only in the developed world, and really only as a sort of educational and awareness raising organization, okay. trying to do things like this ending hunger briefing and have have people in the developed world have a much clearer sense of what's possible in terms of ending hunger. But in those intervening years, it had gone and actually now had programs on the ground in Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and parts of Central America. And, uh, and the programs were incredible. And, and uh, they, were, they were based on two really, uh, I think in the industry of, of international uh, development, uh, pretty unique characteristics. The, the first was that they, uh, they realized that, again, if you're going for this long-term solution, uh, the, it's so important to realize that the most important asset in the entire process are the people themselves, hmm. not, not any sort of out, ex, outside expertise or right. money or goods or services that are sent from somewhere else. Because that whenever you send something into a community, and again, we're talking about and it's important to distinguish chronic persistent hunger, which is 90% of the hunger in the world. That's very different than famine. Right. Very different. It's not an, it's not an overnight emergency. This is year in year out intractable poverty. It's generational. I mean, it's, it, it, it is. It is. And so traditional uh, modes of, of, of assistance would often reinforce the idea, the mindset in people who are being helped that, you know, if something's going to change, it's going to because it's going to be because somebody comes in from outside and, and right. helps us or, or gives us money or gives us, you know, uh, food or gives us something. Um, and and our work really took that mindset on and realized that it, unless that changes, unless people realize that that people have their own even even in those even in those challenging circumstances yeah. their own agency yeah. to make something happen then until that mindset shifts it's a, a partnership that can can really develop and lead to something strong uh, is not possible so that was the, the aha number 1 that was sort of guiding the strategies throughout the, the world where we were working the other was and it, it came out of a remarkable study that was done in 1995, called the um, Asian Enigma. Uh, it turns out that uh, 
hunger in uh, around the world was much greater in South Asia, India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan, that whole area, mm-hmm. uh, than it was in Sub-Saharan Africa. And it should have been the other way around for yeah. all the reasons, because of economics, because of infrastructure. It just, you know, the, the it, it shouldn't have been that way. And this, age, this Asian enigma revealed the fact that there existed this cycle of malnutrition that was hidden. And it was basically driven by this incredibly severe discrimination against women and girls. Hmm. And it starts with parents praying not to have girl children. And if they have a girl child, if, 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 if there's not infanticide, then the, then the girl child is breastfed six to eight weeks less than her brother. Really? Okay. And, and then joins her, as a toddler, joins her mother and sisters and always eating after the men and boys, and that's always less. And then as she enters her ad, in adolescence, she's held back from school to uh, look after, you know, do chores and look after um, uh, little ones. So she enters puberty when she most needs more nutrition, doesn't get it, gets married off really early, like 13, 14, mm-hmm. 15. And and if if she gets pregnant early, that cycle just continues. Yeah, it just teaches her own children what she's learned. Exactly. So so that that she, we actually had a program in India that that when this study came out, we we, we put a halt to it and and uh, actually took two years to try and figure out how do you possibly get some leverage in changing this deeply entrenched social condition. That's a big big this challenge. Is, this is you don't huge. Go in no and matter. No, we we're, we're we're a relatively small organization. You know, who are we to think that we could possibly do something? Well, it turned out there was this unique opportunity. A few years earlier, the Indian Constitution had been amended to reserve one-third of all the seats in these locally elected village councils for women. Okay. So in that, the first election was in 1995, uh, and over 5 million women, in the, in the place where the women should get, you know, the last chance to be running for election, right. they're, they're running for election. One million women actually were elected, uh, and, uh, and all of a sudden, you've got a whole new dynamic that's possible uh, where decisions are being made around at the, at the local level. And, uh, but nothing was really going to change. Because these women were so under the thumb of their father-in-law or their husband that they were going to go take up a seat. When it came time to deliberate, they were going to be quiet. Mm-hmm. And when it came time to vote, they were going to look Ask over their shoulder <laughs> and, and, and be told what, what to do. So we, we decided if we could put together an array of local Indian social service organizations, and at the time when we launched this in 2000, it was uh, about 60 organizations who could provide an in-depth, ongoing leadership training and support for these women to actually be able to participate effectively in these new roles. So that's what we took on. Hmm. And, uh, and it was an amazing to see what, what, what could happen when, when women really began to feel like they had some say and yeah. could, could actually... Could, Empowered and, by... Completely, completely. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, those, so the, the sense that, that, that you really need to have the, anybody that you're participating experience their own agency before mm-hmm. you can really go anywhere, and re- this recognition of this, this gender dynamic were the two things that were really exciting about what the Hunger Project was doing. And, and I just basically went and told this, uh, this story a million times to yeah. people who wanted to, you know, we want more of that. Give, here's some money to go, you know, go do it. When you were... 
you know, doing that sort of fundraising, was it targeted like at a grassroots level? Was it targeted at corporations and high net worth uh, individuals? I mean, was there a focus almost, of that? Almost all, uh, you could say grassroots. I would, I would just say individuals. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we, we didn't, we had a, a small group that did some foundation fundraising in our New York office. But uh, um, what, what I had a colleague on the West Coast, a colleague on the East Coast, and I was in, based out of Amarillo, and my biggest markets were Chicago and Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was basically individuals probably would fit the category of high net worth, but uh, we were going for people who could do somewhere between $5,000 and $100,000 mm-hmm. a year. So. And I'm curious if, if your largest markets were Phoenix and Chicago. Yeah. Um, why why Amarillo? I mean, why why did you stay here when maybe it, it could have been easier, you know, if you lived in some of those larger cities? It could have been. It, uh, we we came to love, we came to really like Amarillo. <laughs> you know, we were we were woven into the community at that time. We had um, in the late nineties we had joined St. Andrew's Episcopal Church sure. and and it's still a big part of our life and a big part of our community. Um, we had been become active with uh, you know various arts organizations and other social service organizations here uh, we still had family here that was pro- probably we moved Barbara's mother here from Albuquerque during that time okay and so and and she's got a brother here who maybe even taught you Mike Harder who uh, oh, I know Mike Harder yes. yeah from well, didn't he teach he you at Austin my, at Austin uh, yeah seventh and eighth grade. Was it? State uh, history teacher. Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, that's Austin. That's Barbara's brother. And, One of my uh, favorite teachers, though, of all of my time at AISD schools. Well, I tell you what, we can't take him to dinner anywhere without having a handful of ex, you know, former students yeah. come up and just say, "Mr. Harder, how are you? Great I believe to see that. You. I believe that. It's, uh, and uh, and then her sister Marty, who was married to John Marmaduke. Okay. Uh, so yeah. so we had family here. So and, and I also I'm, I was covering the southeast as well because those my roots are in the Carolinas and Atlanta. Um, so it wasn't a particularly you know symmetrical you know divvying up of the geography. But uh, and I raised a bunch of money here in Emerald too. There's a lot of well, people here. Yeah, who, a lot who, of generous uh, people here. Yeah, they really are. Well, so I I know that uh, you know, you put a timeline on that and you said you you worked for uh, that organization for 15 years. Yep. Um, after retiring from that, you're still involved in the local nonprofit world. I am. I am. The, and I, uh, yeah. So t- tell me, well, I mean, tell me about the decision to retire and, and, and tell me what you found yourself doing after that. Yeah. I, I got this notion. First of all, I turned 64 years ago. And this was, this was in the, the couple of years leading up to turning 60. And I thought about my life in terms of thirds and that, you know, I had this final third of my life and I wanted to have a blank canvas to put, put a, you put it together. Okay. And so that's, and, and I happened to have, uh, thanks to some family money, we had some savings and, and assets that we could, didn't have to work. So, so I could retire at an early age. So that was a decision to, to retire at 60. And I spent that first year uh, involved in a political campaign for the first time. Uh, it was when um, Beto O'Rourke was oh, okay. running against Ted Cruz. Yeah. And uh, uh, we did a whole bunch of canvassing for Beto and, and uh, um, got got close, but didn't didn't quite get yeah. there. Oh, um, you may have but, another but, chance to, but, <laughs> to get back right. involved with that's that. That's right. That's right. And then, uh, and then that was 2018, 2019. Ended up getting involved with a group called Braver Angels, which uh, brings together two sides of the coin, the, the red and blue, and to right. try and uh, have some civil have some civil conversations. Civil conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then COVID came along and sort of put a halt to that because it was all sort of face-to-face uh, meetings that we were doing. And then so as 2020 evolves, 
um, I get, well, 2019, actually, I, I stumbled across this uh, mayor summit on uh, early childhood development that, that uh, was really spectacular, had this remarkable uh, professor, Dr. Ron Ferguson from Harvard, talking about just really raising uh, an infant and a, and a toddler and a, and a pre-K, is, it really is brain science. It's what yeah. it's, 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 there, there's so much development going on in, in a child's brain, and that uh, and that ninety percent of the brain is actually you know fully formed by age three. And so I had had this friend back in North Carolina who had, who had art was I, I think I told you at one point was on the North Carolina school board who had who had told me that when he got off that the one thing he learned was that if you're going to make a difference in in K through twelve. The, the time to make it is pre-K, right? And so uh, that coupled with this uh, mayor summit, and then this incident that uh, with with uh, George Floyd of all folks, when that happened, uh, St. Andrews held a, uh, a Sunday school series called Beloved Community that invited a number of uh, local Black leaders to come via Zoom. Uh, talk to our class and uh, and talk to us about what what it was like and and for them and and what should, what they would like us to know and how could we help and um, and in one of the classes one of the leaders said if you can if you can get books to kids on the north side that would make a huge difference hmm. and uh, um, and we took that to heart and ended up uh, a colleague of mine over at St. Andrews knew of this group called Storybridge right and said let's let's raise some money let's get them to get the books and then let's deliver them and in this case it was to Carver Early Childhood Academy and so that's what we did and and lo and behold at that I was on one of myself Mary Emini and and uh, and the executive director of Storybridge Chandra Perkins mm-hmm. uh, met for the first time over at uh, Carver uh, that morning, and got to talking, and and uh, sort of began to to well, we really didn't actually get much going at that, but we just we met, and and when I proudly told my friend back in North Carolina that uh, we had done this this book gifting, he said, if you if you want to get into the book gifting business, there's only one game in town, and that's Dolly Parton Imagination Library. That's right, yeah, and. Uh, so, uh, so I called Chandra to talk about that, and she she was well aware. Yeah, of, of, I remember uh, you said, "Hey, Chandra, have have you heard of this Dolly Parton thing?" And she was like, uh, "Yes, yeah. yes, I have." Yeah, she had because that had been a goal of hers for years. It she had. just didn't have you know the infrastructure really to, right. to get to that point. That's right. That's right. And but this timing was just perfect, and we we ended up having a couple of we got. Uh, Jill Goodrich from mm-hmm. uh, Opportunity School became part of our steering committee. Recent podcast guest. I, I understand that, and uh, um, and she brought one of her colleagues. Um, I'm trying to think if we if we brought Joe Bill Sherrod from Amarillo College to come over, and and uh, uh, but it, it, anyway, we began to think think about how to do this. And it, at one point, I don't tell this aspect of the story very often, but but I had my heart set on that Amarillo College would actually be the local affiliate. Hmm. And the reason being was that wouldn't it be cool to have kids and at that age and families seeing just the Amarillo College logo on every book that came into the oh, yeah. and get the get because get the college mindset, you know, set from an early stage. And uh, and I called Chandra 
to tell her that, you know, that's what, what do you think? She, there was a lot of silence on the other end of the phone. <laughs> and she said, she said, uh, uh, no, I, I think, uh, I think we're the ones who need to do it. And I'll, uh, she ended up writing me this long email as to, as to why and it was beautifully written and, and, uh, made the case and, and thank God, because we would ended up being such a small little, little low priority for right. Amarillo college. Whereas, you know, Book gifting is the DNA of Storybridge, and and it was just this has been a perfect match uh, since we started. Our first uh, gifts were March of this year, okay, and uh, and so and now we just we're right, we're four uh, children away from having twenty seven hundred kids signed up receiving a brand new age appropriate book in their mailbox every month, right, and. Uh, and at a cost of $2.10 per book, including shipping, which if you multiply that for the year, it's, it ends up being $25 a year uh, for per, per child to get 12 books. And we are we could not be more excited. We've got, a, we've got an ambitious goal to get to 10,000 within three years, and, uh, um, and we're off and running. And, and the community has been great in terms of providing support uh, through Panhandle Gives. It was wonderful. Right. Um, and we still need a lot more. And anybody sponsoring a child at $25 a, uh, a year is great. Uh, if you want to do 10 children at $250, that's great, too. And we've got what we call the Founder Circle, which is uh, this three-year commitment of people who want to uh, sponsor between 50 and 1,000 children uh, for th- each of three years, r- ranging from $1,250 on the low end to $25,000 on the high end. And we have, mm-hmm. we have two families at the $25,000 level. Wow. And, uh, it's, um, it's, uh, and we, could, we need some more because it's going to get – the more children we sign up, the more expensive it gets. And, so, um, and, and again, you're back to – the fundraising aspect that's, of what you did for so many years. That's um, right. But just right now, it's focused here in Amarillo it and, is. and the kids in the Panhandle. It, it is. It is. It's exciting. It's uh, right now Potter and Randall County, and and uh, when we when we reach or get close to that ten thousand mark in Potter and Randall County, we think that there's a real opportunity to do all twenty six counties of hmm. the Panhandle. And uh, um, it's a little early to be talking about it, but that's that's our vision. That's the goal. And uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to I want to kind of close up this section and just ask you, you know, now that you've lived here in Amarillo for 25 years, um, after growing up someplace else, after spending, you know, uh, so much of your adult life in New York City and places like that, tell me what you've kind of come to learn about this community or, or what you've come to appreciate, I guess, about this community as, you know, maybe a, a second home as as your life yeah. has kind of changed yeah i think you know i have people all the time back east asking me look there's no reason for you to be out there anymore you, you need like, to get back over here where back, you're come supposed back to come be. back home and and uh and i just feel like and, and i speak for barbara as well my wife um i just feel so woven into a community of committed interesting uh dynamic folks who are doing good things and Yes, it's a city of two hundred thousand, but it has a much a small, much smaller town feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel really, you know, it's got a performing arts, you know, community that is second to none. Uh, I think in terms of we, 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 Barbara and I joke about you know the performing arts that we attended when we the years we lived in New York versus what we what we do here when it comes to opera mm-hmm. and symphony and chamber music and uh, y'all were you know, at Broadway openings. We we, we were at Barbara, yes, but a, a, we like we thank the world of ALT. I, I saw one production. Uh, I don't know if you saw Sweat. Uh, I didn't see Sweat. Uh, but uh, 
given that it was done in the adventure space, we had mm-hmm. seen it on Broadway. Okay. And and told Alan that we really thought the version that he did here really? was was as good or better. Uh, and it may have been because we were so close and, you know, like that. But uh, Patrick Burns was in it. Yeah, and, I was going to say, and, Patrick and I, will be happy yeah, to hear you say that. Yes, I yeah. I, I, he knows. I told him. Okay. Uh, but it's, uh, we just, and, and we love having the canyon, you know, just, just 15, 18 miles away. Um, I took up mountain biking um, when I moved to Albuquerque in the 90s and, and have gotten much more into it ever since. Laying back a little bit now, but, uh, but uh, anyway, love getting down there. Uh, to hike or or walk or or like that, um, and uh, and it's also a good jumping off point for for a lot of places. We've got I've got friends in California, we've got friends in Phoenix, we've got friends in Chicago. It's 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 an easy. Yes, you got to go through Dallas often, but uh, or Denver, but it's uh, living twelve minutes from an airport and no, ha- you know being able to leave an hour you know leave the house an hour before the plane takes off. Is uh, a nice thing. So, yep. uh, so there's the hour it takes for us to get to Dallas is about the same as the hour it takes for people in Dallas to get to DFW. <laughs> That's so. exactly exactly. For the last few months of the year, Hey Amarello is using this space for a special nonprofit highlight sponsored by SKP Creative, and this week's nonprofit is one you've heard of, the United Way of Amarello and Canyon. You are aware of this organization, of course, but you may not know the full scope of what they do. United Way programs cover everything from education and income to health and basic needs. The organization funds child care programs and senior adult programs and just about every stage in between. And all of it is in this community to help the people of Amarillo and Canyon live at their full potential. Learn more and see the programs that receive funding at unitedwayama.org. Thanks again to SKP for calling attention to their work. Okay, I'm back with Jim Whitten. Jim, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes at least eight types of gear worn by area cowboys, from leather Nakona boots from 1910 to a 1995 mobile phone that was actually used on local ranches. It's one of those big brick cellular one telephones. Um, I think Jay O'Brien donated it. Uh, but you can learn more about that, and you can see the whole getup at uh, panhandleplains.org. Okay, uh, eight straight questions, and I ask these questions of most of my guests. Um, and I want to start with with one that I've kind of added the past 18 months or so. But what's one thing the pandemic has revealed to you about local people? I think two things, uh, and that is just how resilient uh, our community is and how collaborative it is. Mm-hmm. Um uh, my wife has a compromised immune system, okay. and so she has been. She pays really close attention to COVID, you know, uh, related matters, and has gotten us so that we're watching the press conference that comes out every Wednesday or right. came out every Wednesday during in the in the during the peaks, and then every two weeks, and so on and so forth. Um, we're unfortunately back in a pretty difficult time right, right now. They had a press conference this morning um, that I think was was just after they had one last week, and and. Uh, um, but to see to see the way the city health department uh, and the 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 doctors the, the the chief medical officers at the two hospitals that are sort of competitors, you know, work work together along with the the health authority uh, when Scott Milton was doing it yeah. and then and then Doctor Bell, um, and 
And then to see what happened when the when it came time for vaccinations, to see what the, the operation that got set up in uh, the civic center to you know immunize or, or vaccinate uh, so many people so fast yeah, so, so quick uh, was so impressive and uh, and I, I think um, you know uh, I, he- I heard today that the um, during the course of the pandemic it it, it um, Northwest, they lost 180 nurses. Some of those were were to travel, mm-hmm. and some just said after just exhaustion and whatnot. But but this just we that we still have enough people to take care of the people who are getting sick um, um, and are doing it in as as professional and as committed a way as as you can. Um, I think that that resilience and collaborative nature is something that, that really shown through. What does this area have too much of? This area, I'll speak specifically about my neighborhood, which is Wolfland. All right. It has too much of people leaving their sprinklers on a timer uh-huh. so that so that we end up having rivers of, of irrigated water running down the street when the wind's blowing 30 miles an hour yeah. and uh, like that. I Both my wife and I are sensitive to... Um, uh, to water conservation and, sure. and it just drives me nuts that you know the timer's there if you're, if you're traveling I can understand but but most folks just put it on automatic yeah. and no matter what time of day or what you know or in the springtime you drive by and it's raining or, or sprinklers are on exactly exactly so or if it freezes and sprinklers yes. are on and there's little icicles everywhere yes um, yeah I, I understand that what what does this area not have enough of um Unfortunately, it doesn't have enough vaccinated people. Hmm. The um, it's like we did a lot really fast, and then it kind of dropped. It, off. Uh, we're we're under fifty percent. You know, El Paso is seventy eight percent. Is it really? Uh, that's, it is. That's, that's what that's what I heard on the on the press conference today, and um, you know, and I I've actually gained um, an appreciation for those who are hesitant because of the speed of the vaccinations production, and we don't know about the long term effects and so on and so forth, but. You know, every medicine that's ever come around has got, you know, question marks about mm-hmm. uh, and good and bad, bad aspects to it. And, you know, currently 85% of those in the hospital are unvaccinated. Um, that That's just, it's, it, we would be, if, if, if nothing else, to, to, to be vaccinated, I don't know how we're going to get beyond uh, this COVID being with us for a long, long time, unless folks are willing to... Call their family doctor, ask their family, get the advice from the family doctor, and just see, you know, to get the shot and uh, get the vaccination, and let's get let's get this behind us. Otherwise, it just continues to change to, to and evolve and, and incubate it, and turn into other stuff that's that's it, even worse. That's right. That's right. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Well, a little bit like I was talking before. Um, it's a uh, you know, it's a town that's got a, a it's a city of two hundred thousand. It's got this sort of small town feel, and a, and a and a bunch of great folks in it. Uh, that, uh, that where we experience a, a sense of community and a sense of you know really friendly, interesting, dynamic people doing a lot of good things, um, and that are fun to be with. Uh, and whether it's the, again performing arts or or mountain biking in the canyon, um, it's a it's a it's a great place to to be, and and uh, we love to travel, but we we really like coming home here. All right, what's your favorite neighborhood in Amarillo? 
Uh, I have to say it's my neighborhood, Wolf, right. Wolfland. Yeah, Brick and Elm. That's true. That's you the uh, that's that's like the epicenter of the Brick and Elm. In that's Emerald. right. That's right. What's your favorite local restaurant? Um, what I would call a local restaurant is sort of neighborhood restaurant, and okay. I and uh, that's Brent's Cafe. All right, over on Olson uh, near near Western. Speaking of Albuquerque, I know that he's got a a lot of he's got a background New in, Mexican in, flair to he, some of his he dishes. He does, he does. But we love we love just his salmon and his meatloaf, mm-hmm. you know. So it's uh it's just a, and it's got it's basically comfort food and and a, a real friendly environment and and so yeah, it's one of our favorite places for brunch. On yeah, the weekends. What's your favorite coffee shop? Palace. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and we like the new palace over, over in our neighborhood on That's Georgia. Right. So it's become yeah. a pretty pretty popular place. Yeah. There's always a lot of people there. Yeah, yeah, we like it, and we like again anything Patrick's involved with, whether yeah. it's ALT or, or or the coffee shop. Uh, we really think he's a neat guy, and, and uh, like supporting his his efforts. Okay. Well, you mentioned uh, hiking and mountain biking. So when was the last time you visited Paladero Canyon? It's been about six weeks. So right. yeah, yeah. Is it a pretty regular thing when you're? When I'm doing it, I'm, we, we, have, we have a Friday group that uh, basically goes out Friday afternoons. Um, uh, in the summer, it's Friday mornings when it's hot, right. and then and when it cools off, it's it's in the afternoons. But uh, um, it can be a weekly thing, but not. It hadn't been for me, and, I, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay, uh, and uh, that that concludes Jim the the eight straight questions. Uh, I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So, what's one thing you would like? listeners to know about or to experience? I'm going to say two. All right. I'm, I'll I'm, take I'm, two. And be, be quick about it. The uh, First, I'd, I'd love for everybody to be involved with this Dolly Parton Imagination Library. And they can do that by getting on the StoryBridge website, uh, which is just storybridgeama.org. Uh, and uh, be a sponsor at whatever level they feel like. If, uh, uh, if you want to talk about higher level uh, sponsorships, they can email me. And, okay. and can I say my email? Is that it, okay? It, that's up to you if you yeah. want to, yeah. It, it's uh, jim.whitton, and that's W-H-I-T-T-O-N at gmail.com. Okay. And um, we, uh, we, got, we have high hopes and, and uh, uh, high ambitions for this program and, and think it can really be a game changer for having kids be ready for kindergarten in this, in this community. Um, the second thing has to do with the fact that about 20, a little over 20 years ago, I had my very first bout or experience with depression Hmm. and have had five or six bouts since, um, um, I've gone many years without it, but, but it's, it, it comes back. Uh, I'm actually in a bit about right now. I'm doing, doing, doing battle, uh, if you will. And what I'd like to endorse is that, you know, I know that it's not an easy thing to talk about. Um, and um, whether it's depression or anxiety or, or bipolar or any kind of mental illness, really, especially with people who don't, you know, know it firsthand. Right. So what I'd like to endorse is something called the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance uh, Monthly Meetings. Okay. And it's, it's a peer-to-peer um uh, monthly meeting where you can just come and and just as you are and have a chance to just talk with each other uh who people who have know firsthand you know what the experience of of a mental illness or or uh depression or bipolar uh is um is like and it's uh 
you know, oftentimes it's 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 hard to talk about because it, since it's a mental illness, it often feels like it's 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 not just an illness. It's like who you are, right? <laughs> as right. A, as opposed to something you have that can be can be remedied. And uh, you know, I know um, from the like I said, five or six bouts that I've had, I've, I've come through each one. So I have a a, a sense of hope that the, the one I'm currently in will end as well. Uh, but that hope is a priceless commodity and it's often available in talking with other people who have been where you've been or where where um, folks who are experiencing this so so if this podcast reaches one person who who you know would be helped by knowing they're not alone uh, and that they can come to a, uh, a meeting it's the second to second Monday of each month okay at St Andrew's Episcopal Church at 7 p.m. And uh, and that you can uh, again, if somebody's interested in getting on the the email list that gives a reminder for those things, feel free to email me. Uh, again, it's Jim Whitten W H I T T O N uh, at gmail dot org or gmail dot com dot com yeah com dot com. But um, yeah, I know this this is a time of year when when you know it's not. It, it, and it can be tough. It yeah. can be tough for folks. And it's not uh, uncommon, and, I guess, for yeah. seasonally for, yeah. for that kind it's of true. thing. It's true. It's true. Uh, when you've been through that multiple times, like you have, yeah. um, and you've come out on the other side each time, yeah. and then it comes back, you know, yeah. it, the door opens again. Yeah. Do you feel more equipped with the tools to kind of know your path forward? I mean, is, does it make it feel like less of a burden? Because you've experienced it, it before, it, and it absolutely does. Right. It, it absolutely does. It that's still um, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just it, it's uh, it's when you're in it, it's just it's just hard. Um, and um, and so um, we had a meeting earlier. We, we were we're shifting in the new year to the second Monday. We used to be the first Monday of each month, but this is we're the second Monday in 2022. In terms of that monthly meeting at St. Andrews, it's still good for me to hear from other people. Yeah, yeah, how they're doing and 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 to get a sense of hope, which is a, you know hard to come by sometimes. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Jim Witten, number one, thank you for that vulnerability uh, and mentioning that. I, I really do appreciate that, and I didn't know that. Um, thank you for being on the show. I'm I'm glad to have you. I'm glad to talk to you. And I'm glad for the the stuff that you brought to Amarillo with you. Yeah. Well, I thank you for having me, and I uh, I really appreciate. It. I feel honored to be be on this podcast. You do a great job in uh, getting the word out. So, uh, thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. And that concludes the episode. Thanks, of course, to Jim for the interview. You can learn more about StoryBridge at storybridgeama.org. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this episode, and to my sponsors, Pestex Pest Control, SKP Creative, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. If you're looking for a place for end-of-year giving, consider the United Way of Amarillo and Canyon. They're online at unitedwayama.org. This podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Criselda, Barbara and Jim Witten, Jess Heredia, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, and Wes Reeves. This has been episode 227, which was the name of a sitcom I used to watch in the 1980s starring Marla Gibbs. 227. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.